Welcome to Revival from the Bible, a daily devotional podcast designed to help more people get into God's Word and get more out of the Word. I'm Ben Blakey. It's Wednesday, December 15th, 2021. The word harvest is one you hear a lot in church circles. I mean, you probably hear that word mostly in a kind of an agrarian culture, but you also hear that word a lot in churches. We talk about the harvest. Uh, Lots of times we think about when Jesus said uh, their harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly uh, that God would send more laborers into the harvest. And even harvest has worked its way into the name of many churches uh, throughout our Uh, culture throughout the world, Uh, because harvest, we think that's something the church should be about, this harvest of seeing people get saved and bearing fruit for the kingdom of God. Well, today we're going to talk about a a different kind of harvest, Uh, and it's going to be a harvest that you need to buckle your seatbelts for, because it's going to be intense. Uh, Today we're going to be talking about the harvest of the wrath of God. Why don't you first Look at Revelation chapter 14, and here it starts with, again, talking about the 144,000 that we saw earlier in the book, but at the end of the chapter, it looks more towards the harvest. Uh, My Bible has the subtitle of the harvest of the earth, and it talks about uh, this sickle, or it starts in verse 14, then I looked and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, put in your sickle and reap for the hour to reap has come for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So there you get that sense of the harvest. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth and the earth was reaped. What does that mean? All these people got saved? Well, let's look at verse 17. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. Another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire, and he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. And so, I mean, even just that's a lot of blood thinking of just coming up to where, you know, a horse's neck would be, right? That's an intense scene that is described here, one of the wrath of God. And that is something as Christians we believe is still in the future. The wrath of God is going to be poured out on the world uh, in kind of this final way during this time of the tribulation. And we see even that wrath is something that we should worship God for. Going back to these three angels earlier in the chapter, we see the messages that they have. And the first one has this message in verse seven, and it says, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made the heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. That even in that moment, there is this cry out, no, we need to fear God and we need to give him glory. And even in response to his judgment, we will worship God. 
That is the sense that we all still need to have. I think sometimes we get uncomfortable thinking about the judgment of God. And there's an extent to which it's not a comfortable thing. I mean, talking about blood flowing, you know, as high as a horse's neck, that's not really a comfortable thing to talk about. But we get to a point where we're uncomfortable and almost as Christians, we're we're trying to apologize for God and be like, oh, yeah, I know God's kind of intense. Sorry about that. What in the world are we doing? No, fear God and give him glory and worship him. That is what we should be doing. And when this time comes, that is what we will be doing. We will be worshiping God in his holiness and in his justice in those moments. We will worship him and not anything else. And also in that chapter, you see again, really talking about people uh, in verse nine, they are worshiping the beast and its image and receiving the mark on his forehead and all or on his hand. I think you see that connection between accepting this mark and worshiping the beast. But as we think about the wrath of God, uh, it's something that should be taken seriously. And a prophet in the Old Testament is going to help us understand that. And that is the prophet Joel. Now, Joel seems to be prophesying in the wake of some devastation. It talks about a locust invasion and commentators talk about, well, was that just a literal locust invasion? Or was the locust invasion kind of symbolic of some other kind of invasion? People will talk about those things, but it seems clear that whatever has happened, Joel also talks about some things that are going to be in the future, in kind of this final day of the Lord, in the judgment of the earth. And even we see some of these similar images Uh, At the beginning of chapter 3, it says, Behold, in those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat, and I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my heritage, Israel, because they have scattered them among the nations and have divided up my land and have cast lots for my people and have traded a boy for a prostitute and have sold a girl for wine and have drunk it. So he talks about this judgment that is coming. And look at some of the image that comes later in verse 13. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their evil is great. So again, there's that imagery of a harvest, but this time not a harvest of salvation, a harvest of judgment in the wrath of God. So as we think about the wrath of God today and that kind of harvest, one response we need to have to that is worship. But another thing that we need to acknowledge is that the wrath of God can be avoided. The wrath of God can be avoided. And that's really what we see uh, earlier in Joel. A lot of Joel is a call to repentance. He is calling out to the nation to repent. We see God making this call clearly in chapter 2, verse 12, where it says, Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. And that is good news. That God is offering repentance uh, and mercy through that repentance. He's calling us, I should say, to repentance. And then he describes what that repentance will look like with fasting, with weeping and mourning and rend your heart 
and not your garments. So even though he calls for some specific actions there, the fasting and weeping, he makes it clear though that what he is really looking for is a heart response. Because it seems that people would go through motions of repentance. Uh, and, you know, when he says, rend your heart and not your garments, they would tear their clothes as an act of sorrow. But the problem is their heart was not repentant. And so God is calling you to have a repentant heart, to tear your heart, to say, God, what I am doing is wrong. It is wicked. I agree with you about the wickedness of my own sin, and I want to turn from it. And I will show that through this weeping and and fasting and mourning. But really what's going on is in my heart there with true sorrow over my sin. And, And then as we think about the wrath of God being able to be avoided, one, it is through repentance, but really it's not like we earn that avoidance of the wrath of God. It is because he is gracious and merciful and he is so merciful. One of my favorite pictures in the whole Bible, um, comes there in verses 24 and 25 of Joel 2, where it says, The threshing floors shall be full of grain, and the vats shall overflow with wine and oil. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army which I sent among you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you and my people shall never again be put to shame. And so there that that promise that God is making to his people that he will restore to them the years that the locust has eaten. I think in many ways that can become a picture even to people today where sin has eaten up your life and even sin has eaten up years of your life. Well, God is saying, repent, return to me, and I can restore those years. The years of your life that you think are gone, God can be so merciful that you'll say, man, he has restored me. The wrath of God, I mean, it is a frightening thing, but as we think through it, it is something that is avoidable. If we seek the Lord through repentance, and what we will do is we will find him to be merciful. So I hope that encourages you today, or even if you are, you know you're struggling with sin or whether or not you should really follow Christ, return to the Lord, repent, and you will find God to be so merciful. And we can praise the Lord for that. And even as we think about the mercy of God, we can say, well, how does God show that mercy? And because they will, we avoid the wrath of God. We don't perish, but we have eternal life. What does that eternal life look like? We're reminded of that today as we look at John chapter 17, verses 1 through 19. And as we look at John 17, recently preaching through this, one of the common ways to break this down, this prayer that Jesus makes in John 17 is, well, first he prays for himself and then he prays for his people or his disciples. And then he prays for all believers. And as we think about him praying for himself, he talks about really eternal life. And he says in verse three, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. He gives us that definition of eternal life because I think a lot of us would just define eternal life as, well, you live forever. And that's not wrong. You do live forever with your faith in Christ. But he defines it as not just a quantity of life, but as a quality of life and a quality of life that flows from knowing God, knowing God and knowing Jesus Christ, whom he has sent. 
So even again, instead of experiencing the wrath of God, you can know God. You can have an intimate relationship with him. This is eternal life. This is the opposite of perishing in the wrath of God is the eternal life of knowing God. What an incredible mercy that is. And then the second section, as we see Jesus praying for his disciples, the main word there is keep. He prays his disciples will be kept. And a good reminder for us is verse 17, which says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And yes, God makes great promises about keeping us in this world, but he makes clear the means through which he's going to keep us and sanctify us is his truth. Are you holding on to God's truth today? That's something we all need to check our hearts on as well. Finally, we look at Psalm 143 and verses 1 through 6 today. And again, this is another one where the psalmist seems to be coming from a low place in verse 4. He says, Therefore, my spirit faints within me. My heart within me is appalled. And what does he do then? I remember the days of old. I meditate on all that you have done. I ponder the works of your hands. I stretch out my hands to you. My soul thirsts for you like a parched land. And so there, just as we um, think through that, you, you see he's coming from a place where he is low. He's saying his spirit faints within him. But what does he do? Well, obviously this is a prayer. So he is calling out to God and that's what verse one is about. But specifically, he remembers the things that God has already done. Is that something that you do when you are in times of need? Do you open up your mind to all that you know from the scripture of how God delivered his people? Do you open up your mind to church history and all the great things that God has done there? Do you open up your mind to your own life and see the ways God has been good to you and the great and wonderful things that he has done? We need those things in times of trouble. Let's make sure we turn there in those times. But again, remember today we talked about a harvest, not a harvest of salvation, not a harvest of revival, a harvest of the wrath of God. And ultimately we need to remember the wrath of God is something we should worship him for, but also it is something that that can be avoided through repentance. And we should praise God for his mercy that because he is gracious and merciful, we don't need to fear the wrath of God, but we can experience eternal life. Thanks for digging into God's Word with me today on Revival from the Bible. For more resources, check out RevivalFromTheBible.com. To learn more about Compass Bible Church Treasure Valley, go to CompassBible.tv. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you.